Hey, welcome back to another fun week on the Prairie Pod. Jess, how are you? I'm really well. How are you, Megan? I'm okay. It's been a lot of field time. Yeah. It gets kind of like overwhelming where you feel like, I don't know, I mostly just go through a lot of snacks when I'm in the field. Snacks are necessary. They're so necessary. But I find that I'm extra tired at the end of the day because I've probably carried about 10 pounds of snacks during the day. And then I've eaten all of them. So by the end of the day, I should feel lighter, but I'm not because I'm so full of all the snacks and the water. And it's then important, it, though. you got to stay hydrated out there in the prairie when it's hot. I know. And you true. you got you to not let your blood sugar go low because you're using a lot of energy. So you got to put back that energy and the water. you got to put it all back because you're using it. Look at this. It's like a bonus safety message That's from right. the beginning of our podcast. Bonus. We don't normally do safety messages, but it feels pretty good. It feels right. It feels right. It's good. Yeah. Well, we're fresh off of our last episode where Dave Trauba basically invited himself to every subsequent episode of the Prairie Pod. Uh, we hope you catch that one out because we had a lot of fun um, just teasing Dave and hearing about his legacy at Laquafarl, which we now know how to say. Yes, we do. For the most part. I th- I'm still a little fuzzy in my mind. It's a qua. Black qua parl. <laughs> you have to say it right. Oh, man. So it seems appropriate that we um, were starting out talking about snacks because our episode today is called What Goes in the Mix Makes the Cake, which if you're me, um, that is a legitimate snack when you're in the field. Everybody needs a slice of cake in their field pack. So this is one of our restoration series podcasts where we're going to talk about building a seed mix. And I just, I mean, Jess, you know this, but this is like my all-time favorite subject. Correct. I, Jess is going to have to reel me in on this episode because I love building seed mixes. This is where the real math nerd in me gets to shine, and I can't wait for you all to see more of her because she is special. (laughs) She's really special. I just, I don't know. So Jess is going to be interlaced in this podcast, keeping me on track, asking me lots of questions, because this is like my bread and butter. It's my jam. Awesome. (laughs) My jam. See what I did there? Bread and butter (laughs) jam. (laughs) I just cracked myself up. Okay, should we jump in? Yeah, let's do it. Tell us more about um, how we start thinking about um, building a prairie from scratch. Okay, so... We're going to do a quick review. If you remember from our pilot episode, we talked about what a prairie is. And we want to make sure that we all remember what a prairie is because this is the beginning. This is the building block. So they're open communities. They're nominated by grasses. And they have a species-rich, diverse forb component. And then usually they have about less than 10% tree cover. And so then remember, we talked about in our first episode that we have these things called climax prairies. I guess I should say we have these communities. They're not things. They're communities. And just like a climax forest, there are thousands of different organisms. We've got plants, animals, inverts, which Jess loves, bacteria, soil fungi, or fungi, depending on where you're from. And all of these things work together. Jess is laughing. I like fungi. Fungi? Oh, I've never, I haven't heard somebody say fungi in a really long time. Fungi. Usually just hear like the dad joke where people say, he's a fun guy. <laughs> I don't even know the beginning of that joke. I only remember the end of it where it's like, he's a fun guy. Okay. <laughs> Back on track. So all of these things, including the fungi, fungi, fungus, among us, um, they have these complex interactions where they're using nutrients, 
there's moisture, there's energy flow, and they're trading food, water, and shelter. And so at this successional stage, a prairie has everything that it needs. It's incredibly efficient and it needs minimal inputs. And then all of these organisms are living off of one another. It's in balance. So that's what we think about when we talk about a prairie. So that level of complexity is what we're trying to build back. Trying to achieve. Yeah, we're trying to achieve that. So when you start thinking about seed mix basics, we tend to think about what's going to be blooming and what's going to be above ground, but what is below ground is more important than what's above. And we've said it once, we're saying it again. But our soils, they're full of life, especially if they're healthy. There are literally billions of organisms right under our feet. We've got bacteria, algae, microscopic insects, earthworms, beetles, ants, mites, <laughs> and our favorite, fungi, <laughs> or fungi. <laughs> I can't even say it now without laughing. And all of these critters need to be fed. So if you think about it, when a prairie is converted, and it's no longer a prairie anymore, all of that nutrient energy cycling is completely disrupted. It's destroyed. And a lot of times the soil structure is restored destroyed. So now we have to figure out how are we going to build this back to get to that climax prairie where all of these complex interactions are happening when we've got maybe disturbed or damaged soil and we've got to figure out how we're going to build it back. And <laughs> just a spoiler alert here, you cannot just throw a whole bunch of seeds out there and be like, well, prairies are basically magic, so it's going to be fine. It's all going to work out. Prairies have been around for thousands of years. We're just going to put them in this compacted earth, and uh, it's, it's going to work. That's not how it works. So before you can even get to building your seed mix and picking the species that you want out there, you have to know what your goals are. And we have different goals for different sites. A landowner's goal for their property, um, as we all know, not all landowners are the same, shocking, and so they're not all going to have the same goals. Maybe somebody wants pheasant hunting opportunities. Maybe somebody else really just wants to do things for pollinators. And it's our job as natural resource professionals to figure out how we can marry their goals and make sure that it's the best fit for the land. So they get what they're hoping for. And we need to be honest about what the limitations are and the realities of building this prairie and the cost. That's also a limitation. So you have to analyze your site and be able to define your goals because this is your foundation. If you don't do this, if you don't analyze your site properly, this is going to, you're going to fail. And you're not going to fail in a good way. Like good failure is when you try something and you hope that it works um, but it doesn't. Bad failure, to me, this is what I call bad failure, is when, like, you don't study for a test. <laughs> you know you're going to have the test, right, Jess? The test is still going to happen. It is. And you yeah. go into it, and you fail. That's bad failure. Good failure is when you're like, I've, I've done the research, I've thought it through, I think this will work, and then sometimes it just doesn't. That's okay. That's good failure because you've, you've laid the groundwork. So remember this things that I'm not great at, <laughs> okay? Time, patience, and knowledge of the natural successional steps are the things that you need to keep in the back of your mind when you are trying to recreate a prairie community. Time and patience are the ones that I think we're not particularly good at. So we want these instant climax native prairies. We want blue stem as thick as it ever was. We want, we want to be walking through that in three months' time and have just pheasants running around in there and we want to be done right three months done 
because we're impatient and we believe we can force nature to do what we want on our time schedule. But uh, nature doesn't work like that. How many times has uh, somebody, you fielded a call of a, a freaked out person, land manager, oh my somebody <laughs> in the public, who, who, you know, you name it, who, help, I just have weeds. Yeah, so many times. <laughs> and this is that natural succession. Again, like weeds are important for your prairie, especially in the first couple of years. That's just succession. That's nature doing its work to build that prairie back. Now, let's define weeds here, because Dave Traub and I have had long conversations about this as well. It's good to define what we mean as weeds. That's right. So when I'm talking about weeds, and I don't know how Dave defines it, maybe we'll have to invite him in here and then he can be a guest on this episode as well. I know he would love it. (laughs) But so when I'm talking about weeds... I'm talking about something that is not a core part of the prairie community. So something that is not what I would define as a prairie plant. It could be something that is unwanted or it could be something that's beneficial. So somebody said, what's that quote? Like a weed in a place where somebody doesn't, anything growing in a place where somebody doesn't want it is a weed. (laughs) So you could have things like a rose bush be a weed because if somebody doesn't like it or want it, then it is. But the thing is, is I have categories for weeds, not to go down too big a rabbit hole here, but I have ones that are a problem for my growing prairie and ones that I'm really not worried about. So things like uh, ragweed, for example, I'm not worried about it. The not prairie's going to take it over, red clover and small amounts, I'm not, I'm not worried about it. The, the prairie's going to overtake these things, it's going to do fine. Canada thistle, debatable, it depends how you approach your seed mix. Um, it's one that I'm actually not super duper worried about it is a noxious weed so we have responsibility to take care of it but if you have a diverse seed mix i'm not super worried about canada thistle so there are just things like that that you want to keep in mind and a lot of those seed producing like massive seed producing weeds like ragweed are hugely important for baby chicks like wildlife so more things that we need to think about you have landform so that's your topography. What's it look like? We know that prairies are different at the top of the slope, middle of the slope, bottom of the slope. Why is that? Moisture, right? Moisture and nutrients change as you go downhill. This should come as no surprise. Water tends to run which way? Down, I believe. Oh my gosh, you just passed this test. You're amazing. I knew <laughs> that you did not have that PhD in vain. I knew that you were a smart cookie. I studied. I studied, <laughs> studied for the test. You studied for the test. Yes, water runs downhill uh, unless something real weird happens <laughs> in our lifetime, but as we know it, it runs downhill, so it's going to be more moist when you get into those depressional areas. Soils, we already talked about how important your soils are. You don't want to just start <clears throat> in sterile soil. We've had this idea for a while that we like to start our reconstructions in bean fields because bean stubble degrades, really like breaks down really readily, and then we have this sterile environment in which to plant the prairie. I challenge this idea because if you have a sterile environment, you have not given your prairie any of the things to feed it well. You need that biology happening in your soil. If your soil is sterile, you're asking an awful lot of baby prairie seeds. They are not magic jumping beans (laughs) and they're expensive. So you wanna make sure you give them the best chance. So I really like, kind of prepping your site with a cover crop, but that's a whole nother podcast that we talk about to help draw in some of that soil biology. Then we got to go to the field. This is their best chance to go to the field. You need to look at your current vegetation, what's going on now, your past vegetation, and this is the question I always get, how do you know what it was in the past? 
Air photos are super helpful. You can look at that. There's also the Marshner layer, which shows you the pre-settlement veg. And this, you know, take the Marshner layer with a grain of salt. So he used, in 1929, uh, Mr. Marshner used surveyors written descriptions of the landscape and he created a map of the original vegetation of Minnesota. He did this while he was in Washington, DC. To my knowledge, I don't even know, do you, do you know, did he ever even visit Minnesota? I have no idea. He was very technical, I think, and did this like very detailed work of compiling, you know, what the, the visual of the landscape from these written documents. Mm-hmm. And the bearing tree survey as well right so in 1930 he completed this map and he sent it to the director of the lake states in st paul and uh that's how he determined what the vegetation looked like so that's why i say there's nuance in the landscape so you want to take that with a little bit of a grain of salt another good source are native plant community field guys these are just a wealth of information if you want to know what a community looks like this is this is a good starting point. The one that we use most often down here in the southern part of the state is the Tallgrass and Aspen Parklands one. It's got a maroon cover. I had a professor in college who couldn't, he would call everything that was maroon magenta, but he couldn't say the word magenta. He would call them mergentia. So every time, like every time I see anything that's maroon, I'm like, it's mergentia. <laughs> Because we used to repeat it all the time. We used to try to find things that were maroon so we could just say the word mergentia. Because it's not a word. Not a word! <laughs> Jess is just laughing. Isn't that funny? I told you this story earlier today. I have heard this story before. I had no mm-hmm. idea that it was in our podcast script. How about that? So another good source of info. Uh, there's DNR has done a great job of taking relevant information. It's primarily the Minnesota Biological Survey who's going around and mapping the state surveying. There are other DNR folks who do this as well, but they do a lot of it. And they have this releve layer, which is their, it's basically plots. It's vegetation plots where they've collected plant data about what is in those plots. And then they've used that to also piece together what type of prairie they're in, what the landscape looks like, these sorts of things. Now it is a protected layer. You cannot access it on the Minnesota Geospatial Commons because sometimes it contains uh, rare plant information and that is protected under Minnesota law. Last but not least in our list of things, field visit. Go to the field. Soils maps, the way that they are mapped uh, and the scale that they're mapped, they do a very nice job of giving a good big landscape picture of what's going on. But in order to get that nuance for your site, whether it's five acres or 65 acres, you need to walk that site. need to become familiar with it you need to figure out what your hurdles are going to be what your challenges are going to be and try to envision in your mind what is this prairie going to look like 30 years from now 50 years from now lifetime from now because you get one chance the way our funding works to restore these this really freaked people out remember when we told them this in our restoration training yeah (laughs) and i said (laughs) i said i made this whole big deal and i was like you get one shot to do it right Make sure you put in the prep in order to do it right. And the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service person in the back of the room goes, geez, no pressure. <laughs> <laughs> it is a lot of pressure. And so you want to do these upfront, you know, laying out your objectives. You want to make sure that you get it right because it's it takes a lot of work to redo it. So you want to make sure that you've that you've laid out your goals, that you've done your homework, you've you've checked all these boxes on 
the different characteristics that you should look into and then then move on from there. So it's it's super important. I would add to this list, you know, it, since this the releve layer is unavailable for the most part for for most people, um, that going to a nearby prairie, you know, if it's of a similar landform type or or something, that's going to be super helpful to, you know, just take a walk through, um, do do write, jot some notes down of species that you're finding that are most common. That's going to be super helpful, especially if it's of a similar similar landform. Oh, that is excellent advice. I mean, that's perfect. There's no, like when you're in the field, why not go to a prairie? <laughs> like right. when, you right. know, because most of the time what we're visiting is we're visiting bare soil. It's agriculture right. land that we're going to try to convert back to prairie. And so, yeah, visit a prairie nearby. Get a feel for what it looks like. Not a restoration, no. but visit a, a remnant prairie. And then that's a question too. People are like, well, how do I know it's remnant? Well, use your air photos and look and see if that's ever been plowed. Because remnant prairie is unplowed land. And so you want to look back at those air photos as far back as you can and see if there's ever been any kind of cropping. It's, it's really obvious with the air photos that we have now. It's not just that people are magical and <laughs> step into a prairie and they're like, ah, oh, this is clearly a remnant. Sometimes you can tell because the yes. structure is yeah. just much more complex than a lot of our restorations because we're still working on how do you get that diversity in your, not just in your plant community, but in the structures that they have. Because remnant prairie is not homogenous. Like, it's not just uniform across. Like, we tend to do things where we're like, oh, this needs to be square, and it needs to be perfectly the same height, but that's not how a remnant prairie looks. Okay. So, and it's hard. It's challenging. So, yeah, like Jess said, there's going to be all kinds of things you need to look at. you got to think about your management, your edge effects, differences across the site. How many seed mixes are you going to use? Oh, so many things. No substitute for going to the field. All right, now we're getting to my favorite part. You're going to make your cake? I'm going to make my cake. I love making cake. I love eating cake probably more than you I You got to do this homework, though. I know. This is the, we got you through the homework, and now we want to make sure when you're making a cake, I don't know, I have become obsessed with the Great British Baking Show. I don't know. This is relevant, I promise. <laughs> Just, just laughs at me. No, I'm obsessed with it. But sometimes, because we are on a different weight system, like we're on a different scale system than them, they say things like, oh, I'm measuring out so many... Grams. Grams. I couldn't even These think of metrics. the word. <laughs> like, how do they measure? Yeah, they're weighing out like grams and liters of stuff. And I'm like, gosh, I wish I knew what that meant. <laughs> because I'm sitting there like, how many cups is that? how many you mean I have to get a scale I don't understand and they're weighing everything which is the precise way to do mm -hmm. I mean baking is a science and so there is precision and technicality in that and so the reason why I'm saying all of this is because I want to make sure that when you are doing a restoration that we are all using the same scale because there's nothing worse than getting a seed mix sent to me and somebody's like can you evaluate whether or not this is well balanced or you think it's a good mix and it's in a scale that I don't understand so with that in mind you need to be using seeds per square foot I know it's scary I know it's hard which it's actually not that hard you need to make the switch now do yourself a favor make the switch now <laughs> because it is much easier to be speaking the same language all right why seeds per square foot okay think about it like this if I have a pound of little blue stem and I have a pound of big blue stem, one's in my left hand, one's in my right hand, 
pound of little blue stem has 240,000 seeds per pound. A pound of big blue has 160,000 seeds per pound. So a pound does not equal a pound, which is why we want to think about square foot, seed, number of seeds per square foot, because you're actually thinking about how many plants can occupy that space. Now, there are other things that come into play here because just that straight metric, it would seem like if you planted more pounds of little blue stem, you would get more little blue stem than big blue stem. We all know that's not how it works because big blue stem is what we call restoration aggressive species. So you also have to take into account the species ecological behavior. Is it a superior competitor? Is it not? Um, generally speaking, species that produce more seeds have less chance of establishment, and so they're generally categorized as restoration conservative species. Think about this not from a plant perspective. Sometimes it's easier when it's not from a plant perspective. So if I'm a sea turtle. A mama sea turtle. A mama sea Thank you. That's good. I'm a mama sea turtle. How many baby sea turtles do I have, Jess? Lots. So many. Lots. Why do I have so many baby sea turtles? Because not all of them are going to survive, sadly. Very few, right? Yes. Like they're lunch for many, many, many things. And mm -hmm. breakfast and dinner and dinner and second breakfast and snack and this yes is, this is true for many um many species plants animals insects etc that produce a lot of offspring the reason for it is that they're not all going to survive it's a survival strategy so the same is true for most of our plants that have little tiny seeds and they produce like two hundred thousand, you know seeds per ounce things mm -hmm. like that they're producing that much seed because not all of them are going to make it. And so we need to think about those things when we're building our seed mix. Now, so we're all on the same page. I know everybody's got a pencil. If you're driving, please don't pick it up. <laughs> it's like the worst thing you could do. <laughs> so seeds per square foot equals ounces per acre times seeds per ounce divided by 43,560 square feet. That is how you get to seeds per square foot. And you basically just make a category in your Excel spreadsheet where you're picking your species and you have that formula already in there. And Excel is awesome. You just drag that formula down and it already categorizes for you. But it's a way to visualize what your prairie is going to actually look like. Instead of saying, well, I have these weights. And I don't really know what that's going to mean. I don't really know how my cake is going to taste. I have no idea. Like you actually can visualize a square foot and think about how many plants you can fit in there. That's why I like it because it helps me compare between species more easily, but also you're comparing apples to apples because you're eliminating this seed size issue basically, or seed yes. weight issue. So, um, when you're getting these numbers of seeds per square foot, what kind of numbers are we talking about here? So when we had pounds, we had in the, the hundreds of thousands, what kind of numbers are we generally dealing with in seeds per square foot? Oh, so in your column, you're going to see anything from like one mm -hmm. to 0.5 okay. to two, yep. maybe three. But it, it's little because think about how big a square foot is. It's yep. not that big. No. So you're going to have for each species a very small amount of seeds per square foot that can actually fit in there. And this is so that you don't have overcrowding. And another thing that we do, and I might get to this later, but I think it's appropriate to talk about it now, is that we do minimums for seeding rates. We don't do maximums. Um, and that's because when you start getting up into these species that have 200,000 seeds per ounce, they can skew your seeds per square foot. 
because it looks like you have a really high number, but you don't actually because you have upped the rate for restoration conservative species. June grass would be a great example of that. You can never plant enough June grass. Like if you plant, I, I don't care, six pounds, seven pounds, whatever, 15 seeds per square foot, you're not going to get that because it is not a restoration aggressive species. It is one that's conservative and it is a little bit not difficult to establish, but it's just not um, it's not as competitive as other things that we tend to plant with our grasses. So you can up the rate for that and it may look like you're planting a lot, but you're not actually. All right, what should, what should we talk about next? Well, I think we should talk about building the next. Oh, yeah, that's the whole point. <laughs> we're, getting, we're getting there. We're, we're getting, getting closer. There. We're getting there. Woo, okay. All right. You've heard us say this, I think, every episode. Have we said it? We should make that a goal that we say it every single episode. I, I don't think we need to. We do it anyway. Well, yeah, we're going to do it. We like to meet these goals. <laughs> diversity, diversity, diversity. I had a professor once in college who said you have to underline things three times so that you can understand them. So I'm translating this to you have to repeat them three times so that you can understand it. Diversity, diversity, diversity. It's like Beetlejuice. Only good things happen when you say diversity, diversity, diversity. So diversity, what are we talking about? It's a measure of richness. This is just the number of species, a sheer count of the number of species. And evenness. This is the part that people forget when they're talking about diversity. Evenness means the relative abundances of each species. So do I just have one penstemon in the middle of my prairie and I have a hundred big blue stem? That prairie is not very diverse. Right, and the evenness is incredibly important, especially when we're developing seed mixes. Because of all these issues with competition and really aggressive species that can be in the mix, this, this evenness aspect of diversity you know, in addition to the richness, the number of species is incredibly important. Right. And that's also why when we go to evaluate seed mixes, my my biggest issue with all of the research that we have about, not I shouldn't say all, but my, my biggest issue is that a lot of times in the research, we address this idea of the number, the richness, but we forget about the rate, right. which gets that evenness. Like, so how did, how many did you plant? Were you hoping that you were going to get to this level of evenness? So we evaluate, oh, well, this prairie had 27 species and this prairie had 50. Which one is better? Well, what rate did you plant it at? You're missing half of the diversity component. definition. Yeah, component. Like, you're missing half of it. So you, you have to have both and you have to be thinking about both. And I know it gets overwhelming when you're building the seed mix and you're like, okay, so now not only do I have to jam as many species as possible in here, or Megan's going to yell at me, but now I also have to think about making sure I get them in the right ratios to each other. Yes, it is complex, but you're building a prairie for a lifetime. That's what you're doing. The way our funding strings work, we don't get these second chances. I mean, rarely do we get to go back and do it again. And yes, that U.S. Fish and Wildlife person is absolutely right. That's a lot of pressure. But this, you can handle it. This is what you're made to do. You are a natural resource professional. You're like Dave Trauba from our last episode. You're on your own poster minus the baby bears. <laughs> you're holding up prairie in your hand. This is how we're going to get it back if we get this diversity message drilled into us. Okay, I'm going to quote our fav one of our favorite people. I almost said our favorite person, but that seemed wrong. So <laughs> we have more than one favorite person. Jess and I just have a huge crush on Chris Helzer. Not like a romantic crush, but like a science nerd work crush where we just think that he 
a lot of things he's doing with his blog, The Prairie Ecologist, he hits on all these issues that we struggle with daily. And we just, I mean, someday it is our goal to get him on the podcast because we just really like the questions he's asking. We feel like he's asking the right questions and he seems like a good dude. Okay. This is a quote from Chris. Every species of plant and animal plays a certain role within the prairie community. High species richness provides redundancy of function and helps ensure that if one species disappears or can't fill its role, others can cover for it. This contributes to ecological resilience, the ability of an ecological community to respond to stress without losing its integrity. Ecological resilience may be the most important attribute for any natural system, especially in the face of rapid climate change, continuing loss and degradation of habitat, encroaching invasive species, and many other threats. The hard truth is that we don't yet understand enough about ecological systems to make these kinds of decisions confidently. I understand the impulse to manage conservatively, sticking with what seems to have been working for a long time, especially in small and isolated prairies. At the same time, I also think we need to build as much diversity and resilience in our prairies as we can, focusing on both plants and animals, especially in landscapes where we don't have many left. I just, it's like a humbling quote because yes, it is complex and yes, there's lots of things going on and we're always worried that we're making the wrong choice. And I mean, our good managers worry about this stuff all the time. It keeps them up at night, but we have to make sure that we're making a prairie, not just putting plants on the landscape. We're not just putting cover. That's one of my most important, interesting things I think about on a regular basis is you know, are we just, are we building resilient ecosystems or are we just planting gardens? I, I think that in a lot of cases we are building resilient ecosystems, but it's it's this aspect of we don't know a lot about, you know, in a lot of cases we have black boxes. We don't know, we don't have a good sense for this, even this aspect of diversity in terms of seed mixes. That's a big black box. We don't, we don't know rates of establishment. Right. If we, if we put a if we put the species down in a planting at a certain rate in terms of seeds per square foot, how does that translate to establishment? We don't know. So that's we're the doing holy grail. Our best guess, right? That's the holy grail is what Justin Myson said. Yeah, if we knew that, we'd be real good at our jobs. Yeah. <laughs> like we'd be winning some awards. <laughs> right. We'd be real good. Well, one of the reasons that we um, follow Chris Helzer's blog is that he's doing a really good job documenting some of these questions and he's he's asking these kinds of same questions that we're asking and he's doing a really good job evaluating you know if I put it down at this certain rate or, or whatever um, and also looking at management questions but that's what we have to start doing is doing a little bit better with documenting yeah so basically we just kind of like him because he's doing what we're doing so we're basically sort of complimenting ourselves <laughs> <laughs> what we're using but we're but it's like a veiled compliment to ourselves we're like that chris guy he really knows what he's about because he's really doing what we're doing and that's sitting there patting yourself yeah that's basically what we did hey if if we're not gonna pat ourselves on the back jess who will (laughs) (laughs) we're gonna have to all right so some rules of thumb to help you baby step into building a seed mix so it's not so scary these these are ways that can help you succeed so they're just like making a cake there are thousands of ways to build a restoration. Thousands. But they all have certain components. If you don't put sugar in your cake, what's it gonna taste like? Real bad. Real bad. (laughs) 
not going to be a good cake, okay? Flour and butter together is not a winning combination for a chocolate cake. Because I'm always making a chocolate cake. So, things to keep in mind. Your seed mixes should have a minimum seeding rate of 40 seeds per square foot. That does That is true whether you're in a dry, music, or wet site. And it, it will change. Like, you need more the wetter you go because you're accounting for loss of seed and dip more more difficulties how much more difficult it is to establish things once you get wetter all right at least 40 percent of the total seeding rate should be composed of perennial forbs this is the most common mistake i see in people's spreadsheets in terms of the math like how they figure this so you're taking the total seeds per square foot of your forbs and you're dividing that by your total seeds per square foot which is your forbs plus your grasses sedges rushes so and then to get your Grasses, sedges, rushes one, you're taking that total seeding, seeds per square foot divided by your total seeding rate. So you need at least 40, that's how you know it's 40% of this composed of forbs. And you need to use the seeds per square foot. That's where the error comes in often. That's where the error comes in, but a lot of times what people are doing is they're taking an individual forb seeds per square foot and dividing it by the total forbs seeds per square foot. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, and that does not... No. That doesn't help you. you. You need to take that total seeding rate for all of your Forbes combined. So Sum it all up. Yeah, sum it all up and divide that by but Forbes plus grasses. Sum. Yes, yep. the total sum. I know, it's kind of confusing. If you're like me, I'm visual, so I have to like imagine this, writing this math down, but you can always ask us questions too. Okay, seven or more native grasses or sedges with at least two species of bunch grass. This is also a common mistake. We tend to just plant the big four in a lot of our restorations. We plant big blue, Indian, little blue, side oats. Sometimes we plant the big five and we include switch. I guarantee you our remnant prairies, that is not how they look at all. And if you only plant those grasses, we're going to be in trouble. And so this idea that pollinators are in trouble, we need to get more forbs out there. So the way that we need to do that is we need to reduce um, the amount of grass that we're putting out there. It's more complicated than that. We need to make sure that we're building diversity in our grasses as well. So that's why I have this minimum of seven or more. And two species of bunch grass. Why is bunch grass important, Jess? Oh, it's so important for some of our um, most threatened... Um and endangered skippers. They they build these really cool little nests down and it Meg and I got to see it at the zoo. We were we felt really lucky. We felt like superstars. We did. I felt um, pretty cool. And they build these little nests down in these bunch grasses, um, these little cones almost, and then they sit down in there and they, they climb up and they grab a little piece of grass and they pull it down in there and then they nibble on it. Um, they're so cute. And they're a little larvae at this stage. Yes, like yes, they're yes. a fat little larvae. They're, they're not flying and they're just like oh sitting in their little couch hut made out of grass, pulling down blades of grass. <laughs> it's the most adorable thing I've ever themselves. seen. Yeah, so um, that's, they, they like those bunch grasses. They're, they're quite protected down in there, too, then, so. And bunch grasses create space in your they prairie. Yeah. So in remnant prairie, good, good rule of thumb, like, how do I know if this remnant or not? You usually have a place to put your foot mm. where you're not stepping on something. There's open space. In prairies, and I don't just mean that in terms of like a sound of music, like the hills are alive. Like I mean it, like you put your foot down and you get bare ground. We are not great yet at in our reconstructions and restorations trying to get that bare ground aspect. 
That's something that is really challenging. But you get that in a remnant prairie, and bunch grass helps you get there because just the way it grows, it creates space. That's also important for pollinators, having that open ground so they can have nesting material. Nest, nest sites. Nest yep. sites um, opportunity to, to get to that bare ground is really important. And hugely important for all of our upland game species. Mm-hmm. Because if you if it's difficult for us to get through, right. think about a baby pheasant chick getting through it. Like, it needs to be easy for things that are small to move through the prairie. All right, we're geeking out about Oh, I can't. Oh, my critters. gosh. Okay. Fulfill the guilds. So, we, we tend to think about this as cool season grasses, warm season grasses, sedges and rushes, legumes, and non-legume forbs. There are five main guilds. And you need to make sure, when I say fulfill the guilds, what I'm saying is you need to make sure that you have species in each category in your seed mix. Because if you don't, you will have problems. This is why when people say to me, like, I just have this huge brome problem in my prairie and I just don't know what to do about it. Is brome probably always going to be a problem? Sure. But if you didn't put anything in your seed mix that is a cool season, you have left yourself vulnerable and exposed because you have nothing in that prairie that you have just built that is going to fight that fight for you against brome. You have you have nothing plant-wise that's going to fight that for you. And you have limited yourself to an endless cycle of management because you haven't put something positive in that system to fill your cool season role or niche, I guess is a better word. All right, then we have some more minimums here. 20 or more native forbs with at least five species in each bloom period. What's a bloom period? I'm so glad this guest person just asked that question. So early April, May, mid June to August, late August to October. Can this shift depending on where you are in Minnesota or the world? Absolutely. But as a general rule in thumb, early spring, mid is midsummer, late is um, late summer headed into fall. You need to make sure you have things that are blooming all season long or else why, Jess? Oh, our poor pollinators. They won't have a sustainable source of pollen and nectar throughout the whole season. They die. That's what she's saying. They die. They die real fast. This is tough, though. This early five in each bloom period, that early one is tough. Oh, the early one is so hard. It's And it's just an availability thing. A lot of that you have to do through uh, hand harvest and, and other ways to make sure that category is filled because there's just not a lot of commercial availability for early blooming species. But we've got to try to get them at least three like at least try to get three in there and there's some easy ones you can get golden alexanders tends to bloom a little bit earlier it's still kind of early mid um if you can get past flower get it if you can get prairie violet get it um penstemon tends to fill that role i'm just like going off the top of my head here it's prairie tough. smoke yeah, it's any tough. of the antenarias all right so to wrap out this section uh, there is a, a great table that I want to recommend. It's from the Tallgrass Prairie Center out of Iowa, and they actually have a table that goes through each guild, the ones that we've just referenced, and then talks about, based on their research, the recommended number of species that you should be shooting for if you're planting a wet site, wet music, music, dry music, dry. And then they also talk about that in not just number of species, but your seeding rate, seeds per square foot, that you should kind of be shooting for as a minimum. We said 40 is your minimum. Um, to give you an example, in a wet site for them, they're shooting for 68 as a minimum. So just to give you a little bit of an example there. So definitely check that out. It's it's worth 
printing out and laminating and sticking on your desk so you just have it with you because it's a really good guide. Okay, I know seed mixes are complicated, but I am just going to encourage you that as much as you can, try to get that diversity in there. Each seed mix you do, I guarantee you will be better than the last one that you did. The seed mixes that I did in my early career, I'm like, oh, wow, that was not my best effort. <laughs> You're just going to get better. Jess, you know what we should do? Yeah. Let's science do the literature. This is the time where we recommend a book, a blog, a paper, literature that folks can read, reference to, because, well, because I love it. That's what I do. And it's important. This is a really important time to be researching things, right? Because that's what you have. You got to do your homework. So Homework's you got, important. You got to do your research. So tell us about some things you found here today, Megan. Oh, yeah. So this is, um, I don't normally do this section. Jess normally does it. But I got so excited while we were working on our outline that I came up with some things. Because we talk so much about soils and what a great um, foundation they provide for your prairie that you're going to build, we wanted to give a shout out to NRCS and their Healthy Soils Are Full of Life fact sheet. They also have many, 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 many good soil references on their page. If you just type in soil health, USDA NRCS, which is the Natural Resource Conservation Service, you are going to come up with videos, um, great fact sheets about biology, how soil works. These are excellent in helping us understand them in a very consumable fashion. And if we're going to be good at restoring prairie, we've really got to understand how our soil works. And so you can check any of those resources out on their website. Their videos that they have there are also really good. And so you can kind of get the basics of your foundation. It's literally your foundation. It's the ground. Then we also have, uh, we, we mentioned the Marshner map and the Minnesota Conservation Volunteer actually did an article about the Marshner map. It's called Mystery of a Map and a Man. And I thought that this would be something that we would just share again. It's a couple years old, but it's a really good overview of how that map was made. And it just kind of helps you understand how he figured out the pre-settlement vegetation. I think that's important so that we don't, sometimes people hang their, their hat on, well, the Marshner layer says this was prairie, but when I went out to the site, it's all woods. Well, that's succession. And, and maybe it was prairie and maybe it's a pocket that was always woods. And we have to use our context clues and, and our goals for that site and figure out what it really should be now. Okay. I'm going to let you talk about the next one. This is embarrassing. <laughs> it's not embarrassing. All right, fine. I'll talk about it. Just that she's embarrassed. No, I'll talk about she, it. It's fine. Oh, I... my gosh. She got over that so quickly. Did you see how fast? <laughs> she's not embarrassed anymore. <laughs> so a big part of my job is conveying recent research to um, DNR managers and our partners as well. Um, I know managers are busy and um, there's a lot of research that comes out on a very regular basis and folks don't always have time to fully consume that. Um, it's not that they, they can't, you know, that our managers are very capable of reading um, the primary literature. It's just that it takes time. It takes a lot of time. It took me a lot of time. So I wrote this um, fact sheet on um, prairie restoration diversity, planting, um, and seed mixes. And so this is available. We'll put it on our website. And um, it just gets into the, um, reviews the, the um, research on why we should plant diverse prairies and how to plant diverse prairies. So it goes into different planting methods, 
you know, factors that increase diversity in prairies. It also covers these general rules of thumb that Megan's just gone over. Megan helped me a lot with this, um, this fact sheet. And then just seed mix diversity, talking a little bit more about different functional guilds. Um, when we, we talk about different functional guilds, there's a lot of ways we can define that. So it goes into some details about different ways to think about um, functionality in prairies. So, so what you're saying is diversity is important. Right. right. <laughs> <laughs> like what you're saying is it's a really nice fact sheet, too. It's just a couple pages. What is it total? Like yeah, maybe it's three, five? Three pages, but a lot of the references, too, if oh, you're yeah, like, three pages. if you want to dig into, you know, a particular paper more, you can do that. Yeah, I thought, Jess, you always do a really nice job, and I loved it. Thanks. I appreciate that. You're welcome. Pat me on the back. Hey, Megan. Yeah, Jess? Take a hike. I think I will. <laughs> See, I get a reward for uh, giving you a compliment. You told me to take a hike. <laughs> so we would like to highlight for this particular episode, this is the part where we highlight your amazing public lands where you get to go out and hike and explore some of these beautiful, awesome prairies that we've been talking about. And because we're talking about reconstructions and remnants today, um, both as the model and the target um, and just the biggest challenge of my entire career, how do I build a prairie and do it the right way? Uh, we thought that it would be a great time where we could introduce you if you're not familiar with the hole in the mountain complexes. So these are in Lincoln County and it's there's a hole in the mountain wildlife management area and there's also a hole in the mountain nature conservancy preserve. So together, I have to do quick math, they're about, about 2,000 acres total. The DNR unit, uh, managed unit, is about 638 acres. It's grassland, it has remnant prairie, it has some wetlands, it has reconstructions and remnant working there together. And it's pretty neat on the DNR side of things because we just started this patch burn grazing project. And so that's where you burn a section of prairie and then you bring in cattle, they're the grazers, and they graze that prairie for you, and then you do it again. You just move them with the burn. So whatever unit or section of that prairie you burn, you move the cattle to that section after the burn. So it's kind of interesting project. Our goal there is we want to cut down on brome, and so there's just a lot of brome out there. But breathtaking prairie. The views are incredible. Like if you want to see hill prairie, like you've never seen hill prairie before, hole in the mountain. It is stunning. And you can just pop on over the, the DNR property grades pretty much into the Nature Conservancy Preserve. They work well together as a whole giant unit. Um, just the, I would say the Nature Conservancy Preserve property is in a little bit better shape. Uh, it's, I guess I shouldn't say better shape, in better condition. It's a large prairie remnant, steep valley. We call this area the Prairie Coteau. It's just got a tremendous amount of wildflowers. And what I love about both of these properties, and Jess, you've been out there too, what I love is that as you walk down the hillside, you can literally feel the transition of going from an upland dry prairie to more music and then in some parts of those units getting down into a more wet prairie condition. Like you can just see the vegetation change, whether it's yeah. the blues of that dry hill prairie that kind of grayed into a more richer green and then the darker green of the wetter areas. I just, my hands, if you can see it right now, I'm just like, my hands are going crazy trying to paint this <laughs> like picture. And Jess knows what I'm talking about. Obviously y'all can't see my hands, but I just get really excited because these two properties out there, um, they just, they're huge units and they have 
a lot of what we're trying to build back and a lot of what we're trying to protect on them. And, Jess, what's a fun fact about Hole in well, the Mountain? Well, my favorite part about Hole in the Mountain is the site of the Dakota Skipper reintroduction. So um, the Minnesota Zoo, in partnership with the Minnesota DNR, has um, this, is, this will be their second year of reintroducing Dakota Skippers at Hole in the Mountain. So it's just a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to try to reintroduce a threatened um, species of, of butterfly. It's so cool. So it's amazing. Cool. Like, okay, so when I was, I know we're talking a lot about when Megan was in school today, I feel like, but okay, when I was in intro wildlife biology, mm. like brand new to college, you know, so I'm in my intro class. Our professor talked about California condors and oh, the right. reintroduction of the condors and how these wildlife biologists had to go out and like grab the last condors and not freak them out, get them to mate, and then do this reintroduction. And I just get goosebumps yeah. when I think about that I'm at this point in my career where we're doing our own California condor, basically. Like we have these Dakota skippers, and I mean, the zoo is really doing it. Yeah. But to be a part of it and to weigh in on which site you think is best and how the skippers might perform and what we need to do to that prairie to make sure we don't destroy them. I, it's humbling. <laughs> like, it just feels crazy that, you know, you, you sit in class at one point in your career, you're sitting in class learning about this stuff. And at the next point in your career, you're doing it. Yeah, it's pretty cool. It's a pretty cool, it's a pretty cool feeling. I just, yeah. And there's regal fritillaries, which are one of your favorites that are they really, are. there's a pretty good population mm -hmm. on the DNR unit. And I assume also on the yep. nature conservancy unit as well but just you can't pass up the chance to go there it's they're great prairies all right well we have just Oof, it's been a it's been a good one it's been a good one We're i love eat our cake this. now oh my gosh we made the cake now we get to <laughs> eat it it's been a real good day it has been a real good day i'm i'm excited i'm glad we did this episode so catch us next time on the Prairie Podcast. What are we going to be talking about, Megan? All right. Next week on Prairie Tuesday, we will have special guests, Area Wildlife Manager Bayonet Bill Shuna and Assistant Area Wildlife Manager Kent Scop, And they are going to talk about their 640-acre restoration that they did at the Swessinger Wildlife Management Area in Nobles County. And so that should be really good after a good follow-up to this episode because you'll have learned how to build a seed mix, and now we'll see how well Kent and Bill did. How they implemented it. Yeah, implemented mm -hmm. it. It's going to be great. See All you right. later. Yeah, bye, Jess. Bye.